Hey folks, my name is Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, we record the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring stories about progress. In what ways are we better off now than in the past? Are there ways that we are worse off? What is the ideal future? How do we build it? Join us as we explore these questions with some of the brightest minds in the world. Today on this episode, we have Zvi Moshewitz. I'm also joined by my friend Quinn. I learned a lot talking with Zvi. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So hey folks, today on the podcast, we have Zvi. Uh, Zvi writes the blog, Don't Worry About the Vase, which focuses on gaming, rationality, philosophy, economics, trading, life optimization, and a lot more. He's been a professional trader and market maker, and he was the CEO of the personalized medical startup MetaMed. And he's also a member of the Magic, Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame, which actually a lot of my friends are really excited about uh, uh, that fact, which I think is, is cool. Um, how was that bio? Anything else you'd like to add? I think those are the highlights. Um, I am currently making a digital card game. So oh, I really cool. Bring, yeah, I hope to bring that to people sometime next year. Um, we have a alpha and we are getting ready to make the game itself. But, you know, that's... Not something I'm ready to talk about yet. Uh, it's ready when it's ready, as with all That's of these great. things. Yeah. Very cool. We'll, we'll be on the lookout for that. Um, so, Quinn, you had a question about simulacra levels to get started. Would you like yeah. to go? Yeah, I'm pretty interested. And in, uh, I've been following the blog for a while. And uh, that's been a very helpful concept for me. Um, it's given me a vocabulary to talk about some stuff. Um, so... I thought we would sort of uh, maybe go over the basic concept because we're on a podcast. And uh, then I have some questions about application uh, if you're up for them. Yeah, so the the very simple, uh, the part of the problem is that there are multiple different sources for the simulacratives, and therefore there are multiple overlapping but subtly different definitions. But uh, the simplest one to get people started is level... At level one, uh, symbols have meaning, and everything is a roughly accurate territory map uh, relationships hold. So when you say there's a line across the river, what you're trying to do is communicate to someone else that there is, in fact, a line across the river. Uh, you may or may not have other reasons to choose to do that, but that is how, they will, that is how they will interpret the statement. That is how you expect them to interpret the statement. That is how they expect you to invent the statement. Then you move to level two. And people start saying there's a line across the river because you will interpret it as meaning there is a line across the river, not because there necessarily is a line across the river. So we introduce lying, basically, and deception. Gotcha. Uh, and now someone else's model is not necessarily something you try to make accurate. It's something you try to make whatever is useful. And that is a very different level of acting, right? Like it's a completely different mindset. And whenever we, and it's important to keep in mind Whenever we do anything, whenever we say anything, we are acting on all the different levels. And so we have to consider the consequences on all of these different levels, right? How well are we updating this person's map towards truth? How well are we updating this person's map towards what we would find useful, to what we would want to exist in the world? Those are two separate things. You often have to consider both of them. Uh, level three is where you consider what your statement says about um, your affiliations, associations. What? So the idea is that when you say at level three, there's a line across the river, you mean I'm with the cool kids who don't want to cross the river. 
that like it is, you know, the position of the in-group that there is a line across the river. It does not necessarily mean that there is a line across the river. Uh, there are forces that pull people even at level three towards saying truths, true statements more often than false statements if there is no countervailing force in a particular situation. Of all of the statements, of all the, of all the animals that might be across the river, if there's a lion there, you might as well say lion if what you want is someone not to cross. Saying tiger only creates confusion, creates an opening, and so on. But so at level three, you are concerned with coalitional politics uh, often more often than anything else. You are concerned with associations and status and impressions. And at level four is where you consider that to be what is, is this well, the relationship between four and three is the relationship between two and one. So the idea is at level four, you are doing something as a move on the chessboard in some sense in order to change what perceptions are about level three or the earlier levels. But you're not necessarily trying to impose a map. So like the idea is at level one, everybody believes that you should have a map that corresponds to the territory. At level two, you believe that everyone has a map that's trying to correspond to the territory and you can change that map. And if they change their map, they will change how they act because they believe the map. At level three, nobody really believes Right. Level three, level three mindset doesn't believe the map corresponds to the territory. It believes that it would be an important gotcha if someone's map were to be demonstrably not corresponding to the territory, because then the outgroup could say gotcha and could make you look bad, and that would be bad. So there is a relationship that ties it back, but everybody, you know, there is a collective, like, you know, you can't, creating common knowledge that your map does not, respond, does not correspond to the territory is bad. But your map corresponding to the territory is not something you inherently care very much about. And you don't expect anyone else to as well, right? You wouldn't convince someone there was actually a line across the river if you wanted them to not cross the river, unless you expected them believing there was a line to stop them from crossing. And at level two, you think that's a good thing. You think they would stop, they wouldn't cross because they understand that when they believe there's a line across the river, they don't want to get eaten by a lion, so they shouldn't cross. At level three, you don't necessarily believe this would stop anybody. And that's an important distinction. Yeah. And then at level right, and then at level four, all of these associations break down entirely, and now there is no shame whatsoever. There is no perception by anybody that the statements are corresponding to truth necessarily or to anything on the object level whatsoever. They are moves in a game, and people who are thinking on level four don't even think like carefully with a map of the game, because that is alien to the perspective of level four. The whole idea that there is no, that there aren't truths and there aren't maps means that they don't have a map of how they are acting in the, non, the, the non-accurate map space in order to achieve an end. What they are doing is they are acting on heuristics, intuitions, general systems that they've developed over the years that tend to move things in positive directions in general. Now you can then combine all four of these, whenever you have an interaction in your life, when we have this conversation, right, I have to think about what's going to happen on all of these levels. If you want to change the world, if you want to have a real impact, you want to know what you're saying to matter, you have to think about all of these things, right? You can't just cheat and like stay on level one. And I'd be like, well, I didn't know that that was something that the wrong people were saying. I mean, you can say it, but it won't carry any weight. Right. Yeah. You- <laughs> You can sometimes nurture relationships where one is a strong default. Uh, My relationship with my parents has decades of precedent behind that, uh, which 
I'm not sure how to recreate that with strangers out in the world, but I think it can be done. It can definitely be done. You can definitely create situations through a history, especially, and a shared trust, where the expectation is other people perceive you on being primarily level one, but it still doesn't get you doesn't get you out of the the thing that like someone who was like sufficiently on the spectrum and just blissfully unaware that other people thought about levels two, three, and four would be, and therefore just ignore the fact that it makes things weird things happen are happening at other levels. Uh, more commonly, what you have to do is you have to be very careful to cancel all those effects out and to make other statements that create sums to zero pretty much everywhere and to be very, very careful to keep things on level one. So like, it's actually much harder to not operate on higher levels gotcha. in a world that we live in than it is to operate um, on all the levels at once because that's just the natural way of humans. But like my view of the default is that the default is that most conversations are mostly about level one. And this used to be even more true than it has to be in the world in order for everybody to successfully like, you know, have three meals and put on pants and like so on. Right. which they still mostly manage to do. It's worth noting, right? Like a person who seems to act like a complete idiot is still doing the sensible thing 99% of seconds, right? right? Any given second of the day, unless they're just talking, right? And maybe they're talking nonsense, but like they're still doing reasonable individual actions almost all the time. They are connected. They have a map of the physical world in their brain. If they didn't, things would be very, very bad. Right. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Do you think this has changed over time? Yes, very strongly, yes. I think that even over my lifetime, so I was born in 79, I'm 41 years old, and you can absolutely sense that like conversations that used to be on the first and second level, or even on the first level, are now primarily conducted on the third level, and now increasingly on the fourth level, as their primary mode, right? So you would never have a politician that didn't know which side they were supporting when they made a statement in any age. And they would, a good politician would always be thinking about this, the law, you know, the implications of everything that they were doing. But, you know, there, there is this unmooring that has taken place recently between people's statements and any real attempt to model the territory that, it didn't, not that it never happened before, but the magnitude and frequency is completely new in our lifetimes. And I believe this has been getting steadily worse for some time. Uh, I think that it was, the peak was sometime, um, the peak of the good thing was like sometime in the 19th or 20th century. Um, but it's very hard to know when. Gotcha. And, and what causes do you think, what do you think is going on? Is this just like more information technology driving this? What do you think? So I do think that there is a cyclic effect over the long term. And, in, and also locally in the short term. Uh, so basically, you can think of it as, right, you can think of a shorthand as four beats, three beats, two beats, one beats, four. Gotcha. In some important sets. Or actually, more accurately, four beats, three beats, two beats, one beats zero, which is the actual physical world that people are manipulating, which kicks four in the ass. Gotcha. Right? Like what happens is you sort of, you have a physical world and people are trying to put on pants and hunt things with bows and arrows and otherwise like get through their day. And then they figure out to communicate with symbols what's happening, and they do much better. And then people right. get to lie to them, and they do better than that. 
the people assemble coalitions and they beat the liars. And then people manipulate those coalitions and they beat the coalitions. And while they're playing all these weird high-level semantic games, barbarians come and sack the city. Right, they're still the real world. Right. Or like everybody, you know, everybody just suddenly gets COVID-19 because like in all of your weird debates over exactly what symbolized what, nobody actually did anything to protect themselves very effectively. (laughs) Why is level three staple-ish? I mean, I get that it's not long-term staple, but you would think if no one actually cared about truth and this was mutual knowledge, why would common knowledge be dangerous to that society? I mean, so, right. So the idea is that you need a certain kind of deniability where, first of all, like most people to be in the coalition convince themselves of the beliefs of the coalition, even if they are technically nonsense. So, like, if you think about issues where, like, the left has one universe of beliefs and the right has one completely contradictory universe of beliefs, and you can, I'm sure, whoever you are, think of at least one example where the other side's beliefs you think are just completely off-the-wall bonkers and obviously false to one minute of examination, regardless of which side you're on. I mean, I'm confident this is true. Uh, And if you're off to the side, you can think of examples where both either of the two sides is bonkers, but certainly one of them. And that doesn't work if there's common knowledge of what happened, right? You have to create plausible deniability. You have to create and maintain doubt. Uh, And in general, like it is considered a, basically one of the things that is most effective when there is, you know, an in-group and an out-group, when there's a blue tribe and a red tribe, when there's us and them, is they are liars, is still a great coalitional move. We have the truth and you are liars, right? Right. Or we have the truth, or, or, or you know, it's the, it's the irregular verb. We have the truth, you know, you are listening, he's a liar. Uh, but either way, the idea is if I could demonstrate that they were lying in a way that they would have to accept that they were lying, or that like everybody observing would know that they were lying, and thus I would have a very large majority or anything like that then they would, their coalition would lose face, right? Their coalition would lose power, would lose status. Uh, it's not necessarily about the fact that when I have the right map of this particular issue that we do better, that we get to do better things in the world. Often the question is symbolic or implies group action that doesn't actually help anybody in particular, right? So like if the two of you disagreed about, you know, something like climate change where like it's not going to impact your life or your ability to wield power in any time's horizon that anybody is actually worrying about, it's a question of what actions will cause what effects over a long term. Then, like, you can have whatever position you want be how your coalition is based. The goal is to, you know, make it so that your coalition gets stronger because it is in a stronger rhetorical position. And for you personally to indicate your support for your side and potentially to help your side be better rhetorically and therefore do better. And because in general, by default, true things are easier to not get proven false than false things. <laughs> and also happen to have better supporting arguments when you haven't looked because they happen to be true. So on average, a, a level three battle right, can still be sort of an ordinary, decent political fight, right, where both sides want their side to win, but we're guided by the beauty of our weapons, even so. Right? Yeah. The idea is that the, the true side still ends up winning, right? 
So like, I think this is a pattern of a lot of human behavior, right? The idea is that we spend, you know, 99% of our effort, you know, on positional conflicts and, you know, competitions and things that don't matter. But that's because we only need that other 1% to actually figure what's going, figure out what's going on or build the building or discover the cure or whatever it is we actually need. There's a lot of ruin in a nation. There's even more ruin in people. Like, I mean, I do almost nothing all day compared to just the number of minutes I have to do things, if you just count useful things. But I'm still an extraordinarily productive, useful person compared right. to, you know, what I need to be in order to, you know, be an averagely producing member of society that keeps the lights on. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> how, how do you think this plays in with, with tech stagnation? And, you know, it seems like we were a lot better at, at, you know, actually doing the thing, right? So it's like we were able to get to the moon quickly. We were able to, you know, you know the Manhattan Project. Uh, how do you think that plays in? Right. So the way we got to the moon was we, were put, we, we got put ourselves in a, we were put in a situation in which it would be very, very valuable to get to the moon. And it was not practical to pretend we got to the moon. You either get to the moon or you don't. And so once Kennedy says, we're putting a man on the moon, even if he has no idea if we can or how, by the end of the decade, we're turning him safely to the earth. Now, like our best coalitional move in our battle against the outgroup of the Soviets gotcha. is to actually put a man on the moon and actually return him safely to the earth. Because if we tried to fake it, we would be caught. <laughs> and because the Russians are actually like pretty good at figuring out that we're faking it and pointing this out. So we have to do it for real. So we do it for real. It doesn't mean it's just trivial because we have to do it, we do it. But it turns out that like, there's this thing in Star Trek where there will be a sudden need for technology that has not been developed or a technique that has not been uncovered right. in order to have people not die or so this new civilization, this new world not collapse or something awful not happen. And within the next 15 minutes, people will start saying words and come up with ideas and suddenly do the thing, right? And that was basically NASA for a number of years. And at first I thought this was just nonsense and this was not a realistic thing that ever happens. Yeah. And now I think it's basically accurate. That if you have a bunch of like properly trained, you know, in the relevant background, right. smart people, and they suddenly actually have to figure things out because they're, the ship is about to explode and it's time to shut up and do the impossible. They actually reasonably often just will. And the other half of that is that they will also blatantly ignore the implications of the thing they just developed almost every time. Right at the end of the episode, it's like, well, that could actually revolutionize. Shut up. <laughs> right? Like, who is the regulator behind the Federation? Where, like, you solved aging again? Yeah, don't talk about it. Right? Like, oh, we could just, like, replace our transporters with this. This is way better. Yeah, but we won't. Yeah, you know, like that. <laughs> and, and we're like that. Right? Like, so, like, but in going to the moon, we had to develop lots of these new physical things. And because we were actually in a show-off physical things competition with the Soviets, because the Soviets' big specialty was, look at us, we do physical things really well. We will right. bury you in all the physical things. And then we pointed out, oh, by the way, no, you don't. And you're terrible. <laughs> like, you're good at, like, mass-producing generic, like, low-level stuff through command economy and catch-up mode. And right. that's it. And we're going to prove it to you basically by like not screwing things up too badly because we can't right. afford to right now. And then like the Soviets were forced to shift to like, 
oh, but what about your social justice? And then like we had a different set of conversations for a while, but they'd already lost the material argument and that's what it turned out to matter. Exactly. And eventually we won because they were out of stuff, right? Like, <laughs> we just but, run the ball down their throat and they just- Right, but the problem is, the pro- right, the problem is now, there's no particular like, until COVID-19 hit us in the, like kicked us in the ass, right? Level zero kicking level four in the face. We didn't have a good, we didn't particularly have a reason why if we didn't produce more and better stuff, if we didn't find more and better ways of interacting with the physical world, that anything particularly bad would happen to us. We could right. just be like, you're, we could be like, you're just not allowed to do new physical things in any way that matters to a first approximation. And nothing that bad would happen to us because we kind of live in paradise. Right? Yeah, definitely. And so we were able to essentially just devote all of this surplus to just fighting stupid, you know, positional good games and status conflicts and like rhetorical devices and everything just gets tied up more and more in knots. Right. And rent gets distracted more and more. And as is lots of rent extraction, and as the existing um, corporations and governments and people of power rely on the current situation in order to continue extracting and have their goods be scarce that they possess so that they can have them have value. Like it is inherently bad when you are doing all of those things and not producing anything new and not innovating and not being pure resource. If someone else goes out and does something, someone just starts doing things. Well, that's not good, right? For you, because like. I mean, you already have all the things. What do you want with more things? Like, it doesn't really help you very much. And they're a threat, but they're a threat to your position, right? Like, so there's a lot of different ways to approach this, a lot of different ways to explain the causal vectors. And like, but just the way that this occurs to me out loud in the middle of this conversation is that there's that. And also sort of the idea that, and I have this this book long sequence that I'm actually working on turning into a book slowly um, called the Immoral Mazes Sequence. The idea being that, right, so, the, so the, the core concept is that when you have lots and lots of levels of hierarchy in an organization, that organization has existed for more than a few minutes, like continuously, it will get more and more Byzantine. And the people who, the people who favor advancing the people who favor um, the people who play the game of advancing in the company. Cornell's Law. Yeah, that, but like, will take over. But gotcha. the, the results of this, right, is really, really toxic. And the more levels of organization you have, the more toxic it is. And the longer it lasts, the more the worse it gets. And you basically can't go backwards. You can only get Interesting. worse. Interesting. Like the way, right. So essentially, because once the people who are, in, once the people who, who you know, once the bureaucrats who favor more bureaucracy take over the bureaucracy, you can't really reform that bureaucracy in a, in a useful way. I mean, Someone like Steve Jobs can come in and shake up the system because he's a once-in-a-generation talent. And maybe you put Elon Musk in charge of one of these companies, he could do something. But for the most part, these companies don't go backwards, right? Normal people can't make them go backwards, even with the best of intentions. And also, they don't hire the person with the best of intentions to be the new CEO. They hire someone with the worst intentions because that's what they want, right? That's the system. The system is perpetuating itself. But even if you somehow got in charge, it's very hard to do anything about it, right? Like, if you if you somehow did have a hero who became the president of the United States and tried to reform the federal government's problems, like they just get nowhere, basically. Right. They get very, very little. They'd have to have so many supporters coming with them in so many different places and so much just uproar behind them. And all of them would be better off starting over, more or less. Right. right? They'd be a, 
And so the idea is the way that you get better is not like you take IBM and you reform IBM and make IBM a good company again. No, what happens is you found Microsoft instead and you beat IBM and you take over from IBM and then Microsoft can start over, right? And doesn't, and doesn't have these inherent problems. You started with a team of people who wanted to build software and offer value. And then over time, Microsoft becomes the same as IBM, right? Develops those problems because, you know, you can hold it back. You can slow it down. And for someone like Bill Gates, right, like Bill Gates can slow this down a bunch, but like he's not going to be in charge forever. And eventually you're going to slip. And also once you get big enough, like it takes increasingly heroic efforts to stop it from starting. And then what happens is, no, you don't, you don't get to just reset Microsoft either, right? You get Google. Exactly. And then Google replaces Microsoft. Like, I mean, this might be the wrong story, but like, you know, the idea. And then, you know, in theory, someone else now replaces Google, right? Like at some point, because Google, you know, at first it was like these two guys at the search engine who were building a thing. And then they tried extraordinarily hard to keep it a culture of producing stuff. But increasingly, I hear from people who used to be in Google or who are in Google or who relate to Google, and I look at Google's products. And it's clear that like they're losing this battle, right? right? They're not losing it particularly fast. Like they're not, they didn't, they acquitted themselves of honor. They, they brought a lot of value to our society. I'm still happy to own their stock, but you know, they're not going to get better, right? They're, this problem is not going to go away. They're going to collect their monopoly rents. They're going to use their unique position to like acquire things that other people build, but like they're going to keep making their own products worse. Because the incentives inside Google are no longer to make things better rather than worse. They are to right. make things worse rather than better. <laughs> right? And this is not to say that Google is particularly unique, right? It just, this is how it is. And so the problem we have is that too big to fail has come to Western civilization, basically. All right, right. And this seems particularly pernicious with governments because it's a lot harder to found a new government and just replace one when they you know you have a monopoly on violence you don't want to just you know it's very hard to respond i mean you have a nice thing where like we have different groups and occasionally we switch between who's in charge so you have somewhat of a small reset right like you sort of have at certain places you do kind of have a reset or you also kind of don't have a reset if they're both continuous and that helps maybe a little but and like there are certain like physical checks where there used to be right like if you are if you let the things like if like the, the people will basically say if the government if the economy is bad if we can't get jobs if we can't put food on the table we're going to vote out the party in power and replace the people in the congress and replace the president and then smart people say but it's not their fault they didn't do anything the president couldn't have changed that you know like like trump is not very little to do with the current gdp right good or bad because there was he didn't have any leverage, right? He could, he could have, right. yeah, he, and, he, and he probably couldn't, he probably, like, you know, we're not going to get into exactly what counterfactuals could have happened, but, like, the U.S. was not going to do South Korea, right? Like, there's no, like, world in which Hillary Clinton suddenly saves the day and we never have COVID, and, like, we've all been going to bars for the past six months indoors without worrying about it. That just is not, was never going to happen, like, regardless of whether it's better or worse. But the idea being that they just say, okay, it's a good heuristic to say when physical life is hard and bad, you just throw the bums out, and that way the bums have an incentive to try and make physical life better right, rather than be worse. Better. And it's like, well, if we tried to be careful and figure out exactly what you did and didn't do, we just get it wrong. You just fool us. We're not very, we're not able to be careful attention. We're not very smart. You know, you're telling us different stories. We don't know who to believe. 
it's a very reasonable proposition to say, well, on the margin, the people who are swingy, to say, well, do we like what's going on? No. Who's not in power? That guy. Right? We like what's going on? Cool. Keep the guy we have. Right? It's much better than random. And it keeps people honest and it prevents the worst from happening in an important sense, which is kind of like what you're most afraid of. Right. The problem being, you know, we have, we don't have these physical things staring us in the face the way we used to. And the right. way that we keep, and the way that, and we're scared of it happening, like we're, we're scared that this giant superstructure we built is kind of fragile, right? That like one big institution fails and a lot of things might come down with it. Right. So we can't let anything call, and also because uh, asset prices have gone up so high, partly because we prevented the creation of new assets, but like those assets are, are fueling lots and lots of people's balance sheets that allow those people to not be bankrupt. And there'd be a cascading data series of bad effects potentially. And we don't know what happens and maybe it's okay, but maybe it's really, really not okay. And there's a period in 2008 where it's like, well, maybe if we don't do this, everything goes to hell in two days. But right, we don't. Policy, and, policymakers were thinking this. And maybe, very... right. And maybe it's just good <laughs> instead. And we just don't know, but we don't want to find out. We're not going to be the guys that blow it up. <laughs> right. I think it was probably going to be really bad, but like it could have, you know, there, there are universes in which it's fine. Or like you have to do a little bit to make sure it's fine, but like not the thing you had to do. But like, you know, they did the obviously, you know, correct and short term moral hazard ignoring thing, which is make sure the really bad thing doesn't happen no matter what you have to do to make that happen. But if you keep making decisions like that, if you keep saving every big thing that's in trouble, effectively, unless it's clearly safe not to, if you keep building up these relationships and regulations that bar entry and let more and more rent extraction occur, even though we currently have more and more like rents to claim, right? Like things are still like, at least up until pretty recently, we're clearly just in my mind, physically getting better. And many things are still physically clearly much still getting better. Then you have this situation where you can't get rid of this, the mazes, the simulacra levels. Like basically you can't let level zero kick the level four people in the face to wake up the system, to like to make them go away and then get replaced by the new system, which is operating at level one and then start the cycle over again, like to a first approximation. You're just stuck. So, and then like one of the questions of COVID is like, does this kick us in the face sufficiently? Right? Does this help right. us get kicked in the face? <laughs> That's the question. That's a million dollars. Right, because like, right, it, it clearly kicked basically everybody with any kind of like authority or like reputation in the face, right? Like it's, nobody comes out looking good with notably rare exceptions. Like Bill Gates probably comes out looking good. Right. But like almost nobody like certainly like all the people who were like lockdown, 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 like all the standard left, all, all the standard blue tribe people said lots of things that weren't true and advocated lots of things that didn't, that they did a lot more harm than good. And all, all the red tribe people did the same thing. And they all still are. And like the people who weren't trying to not be either, nor didn't really get it right either. They just flailed around in different ways. And we exposed how much we can't do things. Like even like both by doing things and by not doing things. Like every time we, every time there's a thing to be done, every result points out how bad it is. Right? We we made a vaccine, right? Right? In less than a year, for basically no money. Yeah. And they were like all the vaccine candidates were ninety five were like ninety percent plus percent effective. Three for three so far. It looks like yeah. we don't know. 
the Oxford one is a little ambiguous, but certainly the first two. It's a brand new type of vaccine that people were just toying around with for years. And it's not like we didn't have other diseases we wanted vaccinations against. Yeah. And that we're like, we just didn't think it was that important, right? We just basically said it wasn't worth it for us to authorize the ability to actually do vaccine oh, research properly. Like Operation Warp Speed done on just some other disease that we don't yeah. like, rather to get rid of, would clearly have been super cost effective. Yeah. And yet, and yet we look at the timeline. So like my dad is uh, an immunologist. He, he, he taught immunology at Columbia. And I, I was talking to him really early about the, the vaccine situation. And among other things, right? And the testing situation. So first of all, the testing situation, like literally he was able to give instructions to a research laboratory that was not a medical facility in any way. They just wanted to stay open in order to keep doing medical research, in order to keep doing research to develop new things and not have all of their stuff go bad through nobody can come into the office. Right. And they were able to literally just run a te- COVID test on every employee every day in March. Or they didn't do it every day because they didn't have to, but like at least once right. a week. Like they just kept testing everyone, caught two positives, sent them home. Nobody else got it, right? For effectively zero money, running the test at the lab. And the FDA, of course, was like, stop doing this. This is illegal. This is terrible. Exactly. You give people false information. You're corrupting the statistics. You're, you're, you're doing all these horrible things. But there was nothing stopping. Like he didn't have any special skills. He had ordinary skill. It's called ordinary skill in the art, right? He just knew yeah. how to create this test because everybody knows how to create the test. And like, we could have just had every research facility in the country doing this, and not just for themselves, but for like a thousand times as many people outside. We could have just changed what they're doing to be primarily this, and we could have solved the whole problem in April. But we just didn't. Right. Right. And like, we just so like we both ramped up our testing really well. Compared to a world where we didn't, we're now doing like 1.5 million, 1.6 million a day. It's like, but you see this just steady curve upwards, a straight, basically straight line. You see it's just a straight line graph. Like you just see like the x-axis, the y-axis, and then just a diagonal line through the yeah. zero point over time. It's like, yep, just, yeah, that's how many tests we can run. And yeah. like, why? Some sort of regulatory barrier, unclear. Why are we running all the other tests? The FDA said no. The CDC says no. Like these people were just telling us no. And they look at the vaccine. So I asked about the vaccine. He's like, I can create a vaccine in a day. Like, again, you know, he's not a coronavirus person. Yeah. Not a vaccine guy. Just a normal immunologist. He's like, I can create a vaccine candidate. Like, just, just like all these, that's the other candidate. I can create this vaccine in one day. It's just about testing it to see if it works, see if it's safe. If we had used challenge trials, if we had not gone through step by step by step, like why did we need, things I don't understand, why did we need to wait for three, two months of safety data from phase three trials? We already did a phase two safety trial. Can't we use phase two to do safety? Yeah. And that's even assuming we can't just do challenge trials. We can do challenge trials. And also like, yeah, if we did, if we did challenge trials, again, we could have had the vaccine candidates in March, done challenge trials and safety trials in April at the latest. Had the two months of safety data in June, but distributing the same thing by late June. Nothing was stopping us except we don't have a will. But like, that's the Star Trek thing, right? If we actually, if this thing was, instead of being 1% deadly, 50% deadly, 
you're damn well sure we would have had it. Right. Right? It's just we didn't care enough. This wasn't good enough. Oh. We would rather do the Hansonian thing of destroying our economy and people's livelihoods and a year of their lives rather than authorize a bunch of challenge trials and a bunch of payments for safety data to be acquired quicker. God. Like, if I was the president, there would have been a friggin' vaccine trial draft. Yeah. There had to be. I'd be like, you're getting this out next week. I don't care what it costs. The safety data starts coming in tomorrow. Exactly. Like, I don't care if I have to be on television being the first person to get it to show people that we're serious. I'm getting a skin in the game and we're doing this thing. Yep. Because that's what you do. But that's a, that would be a civilization that cared, right? Alternatively, yeah. we could just Alternatively, we could just do what South Korea did or Australia did and actually just use the stupid tools enough, <laughs> right? Just more, like, I mean, basically South Korea was just like, so you're saying I could use more DACA. Okay. Sure. I'll just use more DACA and like a culture that actually listens to people who tell them what to do instead of just being, you can't push me around. Right, exactly. But, I mean, there's, I'm not telling you anything you already know. Yeah. But, uh, there's more going on here than lack of will. Uh, Benjamin Hoffman has some old blog post about, I think it's the engineer and the diplomat, about people um, fluidly, effortlessly coordinating to prevent interesting conversations from happening. And right. I've been reading your COVID posts, and I'm seeing people actively coordinating to prevent stuff from getting done. It's not just that they don't care enough to do it, it's that Oh, yes, and but I, like, yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, just go I ahead. I still don't understand why. I mean, uh, I have things I can say that sound like reasons, but they don't seem strong enough to predict the effect. Right. So, like, the reason why I keep writing a 5,000 word column every week yeah. is not because we need 5,000 words a week to tell people what to do about COVID in terms of their physical actions this week. You don't, right? That's way overkill. You need 500, maybe. The reason why I do it is partly so I can have an excuse to organize my thoughts and keep on top of it. Partly, and because other people find it useful and interesting. But largely because I want to get exactly that message across. I want people to see, you know, to see what's going on. You know, like, I can see the matrix. Like, I can see why, that, like, this is not a failure of, like, when I say a failure of will, right, I simply mean if we cared enough in a positive direction, in the tool, if we care enough and actively wanted to do these things, we could do these things very easily. But it is not simply right. Like the idea that like, well, we actually need 10 units of caring and we only have one. So it's taken us 10 times as long as it needed to is not the right model. The right model is there's actually 20 units of anti-pressure that actively wants to stop this from happening in any reasonable fashion. And then the people who are slowly struggling to do it anyway, eventually get it done. That is a much more reasonable portrait of what is happening. And there was, there are clearly schizophrenic situations going on. Like with the vaccine, there were a lot of people who actively just really, really wanted a vaccine. And then there were the regulators who actively didn't want them to be able to break any of the standard rules and force them to go through all the normal procedures. Right. And then there was everything about our society which is coordinating effortlessly and automatically to stop them from doing it. And yes, the question is, why? Um, and 
this is where like you have to just show people the physical evidence that it's happening over and over and over again and let them figure it out kind of on their own because it sounds completely insane to just say if you haven't seen it with your own eyes in one form or another that like all of the people who have any ability to steer the conversation are to a first approximation not all of them but like most of them are silently effortlessly coordinating without talk, without talking to each other without actually coordinating they're implicitly coordinating without even being consciously aware of what they are doing most of the time to prevent anybody from doing anything useful to stop anything productive from happening right to stop interesting conversations from taking place is the equivalent in Ben Hoffman's example, but to prevent people from doing things that would be effective. Because effective things, like, so one of the concepts in moral mazes is if you notice that somebody has a moral compass and will do things because they are right and wrong, and right and wrong does not mean good for my advancement and bad for my advancement. It does not mean good for this division's perceptions by the division above it, or bad for this division's perceptions by the division above it, it means, you know, makes more people happy, right? Or lets more people not die, or even makes the company more money, (laughs) (laughs) right? Then if you notice that, that is highly suspect, right? Like, I mean, for example, suppose you were running for office as a Republican or a Democrat or any, right? And somebody noticed that occasionally you realize that, the, that your group, that the in-group's position was kind of stupid or wrong on a particular fact or strategy. And therefore you advocated something that was not part of the in-group. Well, you wouldn't merely say, oh, this person got this one wrong. You would say this person is not a reliable ally. This person's, this person's priority is not to do all the things that our group does and to oppose all the things that their group does. This person's priority is to put food on people's tables and to get people health care and to like allow the world to be a better place. And that might be their position, <laughs> right? Or it might be completely different from either of our positions. And it might be that they might think that I'm trying to stop that from happening. Any number of bad things could happen but most importantly, they're not going to back our play as well as somebody who didn't care about that stuff, right? What you want is you want, like, so like Obama has a quote in his memoir that he's trying to sell McConnell in theory. He claims he's trying to sell McConnell at the White House on the benefits of some bill. Yeah. And, Mc, yeah, and McConnell says, you're talking to me as if I care, <laughs> right? Like literally, because McConnell is like, you know, capable in this context of just telling the truth of being like, why are you acting as if I care about the consequences of the policies? I'm trying to win a political fight and get power. I don't. Now the difference is because, because it's Obama advocating a position because the blue, because, because tribe one, because the, because the out group is trying to pitch to the in group, someone in the in group support the out group. He doesn't care at all about whether the policy would be good or bad. He just knows he needs to oppose it. But that's different from if, the, if somebody in the in-group proposes a policy, right? So suppose I say we should build more housing because then more people could live in houses where they want to live and houses would cost less and life would be better. 
right? And the economy would grow and blah, blah, blah. Now, this is highly suspicious because it might work, <laughs> right? Because if I'm advocating, if I'm Matt, Ingl- if I'm Matt Inglesis, and I'm advocating for building more houses because it would work, then I'm not advocating for building more houses because it is the in-group position to build more houses. And I might advocate for other not in-group positions because they might work. So I, I am a pariah for even suggesting something that might work. However, if I suggest something that clearly doesn't work, the opposite happens, right? If I say we should shut down the playgrounds because of insufficient mass compliance, thus forcing the kids to play indoors, then anybody paying attention knows that I am saying the shibboleths of my side, that I am supporting my side's position, I am playing a good level three soldier, and that I support the coalition, because I can't possibly be saying that because I think that the children playing on the playground without masks is dangerous. What kind of idiot am I? There is no world in which I thought about this, reached the conclusion from the physical world, this was bad, and therefore I should oppose it. No. So what's going on is, I see children that are four years old playing in the playground in Warwick, they don't have a mask on. If I think this is a bad thing, I might not oppose it because then I might be suspected of opposing a bad thing because it was bad. But if it's a good thing, then I know I'll be rewarded for acting against it because I am now clearly calling out somebody to to be scapegoated. I am sacrificing to the gods by offering up this thing of value in the name of the thing that I am trying to raise in importance and status and to support my side. So there is this bias, right? When I'm debating as the governor, which things to shut down, to shut down exactly the things that don't help. It is not merely that I don't have sufficient incentive to figure out what helps. It is not merely that we are incapable of running experiments Right, which we are, because experiments might cause, if you run an experiment, you might learn what is good and bad. And that might cause people to support what is good over what is bad, despite being in your coalition. And that is bad. So we can't let them run the experiment and get the information. That would be bad. And so, you know, there is the theory that it's entirely possible that everything else that was done by the federal government since the beginning of the pandemic was actively acts of sabotage, except for Operation Warp Speed, which helped get the vaccine there faster. And that was a huge net win. Potentially, it could have been a huge net win, despite every single other action being an active act of sabotage, banditry, or piracy. There's a period where they were literally engaging in banditry and piracy. It's worth remembering this. Yes. (laughs) So when you talk about sacrificing to the gods, the gods are the coalition? Or the symbols of the coalition? Or? So the, the gods are, like, so the, the idea is that the gods are this, you know, m- this made-up thing that must be appeased by sacrifices. Uh, so it's not necessarily sacrificing to the coalition. Sacrificing to the coalition itself would be a different thing. It's more, we must engage in symbolic, so sacrificing to the gods is symbolic action that destroys value in order to demonstrate that you have destroyed value in the name of symbolic action, which therefore leaves you not blameworthy because you did the destructive action, but point, but allows you then blame others for not engaging in similarly destructive action in behalf of the same symbolic result. 
So I basically I don't think there's much difference in terms of functionality between shutting down the playground for insufficient mass compliance and butchering a goat at Apollo's temple. Uh, no, gotcha. I. <laughs> <laughs> They're a lot closer than we, uh, us moderns would like to admit. Except that the priests get to eat the goat. That There's is the difference. There's a real difference. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Gwen, do you have a question? I'm just putting things together. Um, it's like the toxoplasma of rage, but for policy rather than facts. <laughs> you know, that Scott post about um, people backing deliberately weak cases because it's a stronger in-group signal. Right. It's exactly the same phenomenon, right? Because if you backed a, if you backed a case because it was a good case, it is not a very strong signal of anything. It's also unlikely to get attention from the, from the other side and get pushback because it's a good case. Right, you do really want to provoke the conflict in a ways that will make it clear what everybody is doing. And yes, except that's just about information. That's just about facts. And I say the word just, obviously, doing a lot of work there. But that's not, you know, that, that, that's not the kind of horror you should actually be looking for. Right? The true horror is trying to do maximally destructive things in the name of your side because it is much more to your benefit to do destructive things rather than beneficial things. And people have figured this out and they're in, like, they don't even think about it, right? Like they don't consciously think, what can I do that will be destructive? They think, what can I do that people will like, that will, that will like help me accomplish my goals? And their brains automatically have learned, pick the thing that doesn't work. Gotcha. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh. You also have a post about asymmetric justice, which seems like an application of the Copenhagen interpretation of ethics. The result yes, of I inaction. Right, I directly, I directly actually call out the Copenhagen interpretation. I believe, like yes. right at the beginning. So that came out of a conversation actually with Ben Hoffman and uh, another person, where we were we were talking back in New York. We met in person back when that was allowed, right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It was kind of cool, and we walked around and we talked about some stuff. And it was clear that this person hated, uh, like lo- most, almost all large institutions, especially and, and concepts like capitalism, even hmm. because they caused specific harm. That they because that, that wasn't necessarily even like more likely or directly caused by them, but more like they were interacting. You know, they were interacting with the problem. It was more like a you know Copenhagen interpretation like level thing sometimes, but also just directly like you know if you have winners and losers right? You're responsible for the losers. That makes you a horrible person. And I basically argued, but what about the winners? I asked the question, right? And the answer was, don't care, right? Like, you might be right, there might be winners, but I don't care. It's horrible to create losers. I mean, there's a certain amount of like, you know, you stop three, you know, you, you, you shoot one innocent person and suddenly your entire 20 year career as a policeman is forgotten helping people. What's up with that? Right, like that doesn't seem fair, but and we understand why in that situation that's that's a reasonable thing to say. But like, if you think about it, like if you are if you found a comp- if you found a company and you sell a product, you make a product for one dollar and you sell it for ten dollars. The average person who buys it, if they're willing to buy it, probably gets you know fifty dollars, a hundred dollars yeah. worth of value out of that thing. 
So you're capturing, and that's if you're lucky, right? You're capturing a very small portion of the net utility, right? Like I get, like, if you think about it, like when, 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 when Sergey Brin, right? And when, when Sergey and, and, and company founded Google and Larry Page, they created one of the world's most valuable corporations, but captured, well, if you had to guess what percentage of the value created by Google, right? Tiny. More, or less, more or less than one, right? Yeah. I, like, Right, but if someone has a specific harm against Google, they can sue and collect not only the damages, but punitive damages on top of that. And people will call them out for specific things that Google did wrong and roast them in the press and call for them to be split up or regulated or attacked or whatever. And the same thing is true for a person, right? Like if you, if I offered like advice, one of the things that like um, I will write in the column sometimes is this is not medical advice. This is not, I'll even say this is not investment advice sometimes, right? Like I'll just do the Matt Levine thing. Like totally, like just keep repeating, not investment advice, not investment advice, not investment (laughs) advice. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And so obviously the point of conveying this type of information is so people can do better, make better decisions and learn about the world, but also make better decisions. And obviously a lot of things I share are so that there is an implied piece of advice that if you just follow the logical conclusions of the things that I'm saying, you would figure out what you probably should be doing and more likely you are to do it. But if I am giving advice, then anybody whose life turned out badly because they did that advice instead of something else, and anytime you advise someone to change their behavior in order to either make sure not to get COVID or make sure not to let their life pass them by while avoiding COVID, and some of them will either at some point get COVID when they wouldn't have or miss out on something when they wouldn't have. And their life will be worse and they could theoretically sue my ass, right? And that would be very bad. And that'd be true even if every single person reading that made the right decision, but they got unlucky. <laughs> and so this just keeps being the way things work over and over and over again. If you act, if you are seen as the one acting, yeah. then you are responsible for every little thing that goes wrong, 100%, or even more than 100%. And you get credit for very little of the gains, right? Like in the trolley problem, right? Like what is the legal answer to the trolley problem? I mean, it's complicated, but like the legal equivalent of a, non, a non-explicit, or like a soft trolley problem is you go to jail. Right. If you if you flip the switch, you go to jail. Right. Yeah. Like, like if you push the fat man off of the off of the off of the bridge to stop the train, and it works, you sacrifice two lives to save five, not one, because you're going to jail. <laughs> but we're all worse off. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do it. I'm saying society will not look kindly upon this decision, and you know this. So act accordingly. That's wild. You see that in a lot of a lot of large institutions where, um, and, and companies where after a period of time, you know, no one, uh, very few people do anything, and they try and avoid doing things because there's downside risk to doing things. Right. There's also the, there's also the fact that, like, realistically speaking, a lot of people, not everyone, but like at least half the people, have essentially everything they could ever want to a first approximation in some important sense, right? So like I have a family, I have 
you know, a few levels of savings, basically, you know, slash the ability to earn whatever I need to, whenever I need to. Yeah. I have all of the entertainments the world has ever created to a first approximation at okay. my fingertips. I have good friends. And they basically like, I have good friends. They don't live down the street, but you know, I've got the rest. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, if I try doing something and I destroy someone's life, I could lose everything. Something goes really wrong. I could lose everything. If I made a billion dollars, that's just more money, more problems. Yeah, it doesn't. Right? Really- like, it's only, I mean, I might want to like save the world, you know, create create friendly AI or immortality or whatever. I might have big plans myself. But for most people in most situations, right, the upside of being better than upper middle class, or certainly better than lower upper class, is basically zero. Right? Like I, I eat exactly what I want whenever I want, subject to restaurants being dangerous places to be. Right. Right. Like I, I have all of the material goods that I actually care about whenever I want them. And I'm not that rich. Right. The people who have a thousand times more money than me and, you know, have gold plated toilets and private jets and, you know, personal servants and all that. Are they better off? A little, maybe probably worse. Right. right. Like, so in that situation, why would I do anything, right, in some important sense, right, that had consequences, right? Like, in a world in which, you know, it used to be like you were king, you've yeah. got a palace of a thousand virgins guarded by eunuchs, like literally, right? Yeah. And, every now, and you'd periodically go down there and try to sire as many children as possible, because that was like how you won in points in the genetic lottery. And it was kind of, you know, so it made sense to try and be the king in, yeah. some, in some sense. But in terms of your, like, today, right, like, it makes, you know, do you think Barack Obama increases uh, inclu- his, his inclusive survival fitness by running for president? Oh, God, no. <laughs> it, got, it, went, it went way down, right? right? It just, it just, you're just aging yourself by 10 years. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, it doesn't help you. <laughs> does this explain is does this at least partially explain why interest rates trend downward and why they you know are now negative to some extent i mean it could be a little bit of it like but basically there's just there's no reason to ex- it's just it, that's just supply and demand right to some real right. extent like if everybody wants to push their consumption forward yeah right then there's no reason to charge interest but it's like there's, a, there's nothing to spend money on because you can't do anything. It's right. a, a, a kind of a really, really the one way to put it, right? Like if, if you suddenly let people do stuff, then everybody's like, I want to build, build housing. Can I borrow some money? I want to build yeah. a factory. Build all this. I want to build a factory. Can I borrow some money? I want to do all this research. Can I borrow some money? Et cetera, et cetera. It'd be good investments. You can invest this compete for capital. The cost of capital would go up. The returns would go up. But like as it is, yeah, if you want safe return on capital, you know what you can get? nothing nothing here is your nothing your actual nothing 100 nothing <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all that that's it's super interesting and, and I, had, I had one other question it's unrelated but how do you think about the efficient market hypothesis i know you're a trader you're a super smart guy it's false it's false really okay now that is super fascinating I, i'd love to dig into that a little bit i mean i didn't qualify that it's just false i mean Keep in mind that, like, it is less false than 
you would think if you just came in with no knowledge of the, if you never heard of the efficient market hypothesis or the idea that yeah. prices were accurate, your model of the stock market and most markets would be much, much worse than the person who believes the who believes the EMH is strictly true. But if you believe the EMH is strictly true, you have a useful map of the territory that is wrong, but will let you do reasonably intelligent things in most situations for most people. It's not importantly wrong in many ways, right? But it is just wrong. Like it's wrong like 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 Newtonian physics, right? Like it's gotcha. just not how it works. So think of it this way. How does the market price reflect reality? Right? This is sort of the conceptual reason why, right? Why it's obviously false. So if you're a trader and you look around, and what are you looking for? You're looking for something that's priced wrong, right? right. If everything was priced correct, everything was priced correctly, if the EMH was holding everywhere, you wouldn't have a job, right? Right? Because you'd be like, I can make $0 by trading. Why would I do that? Like at most, it would be off by the cost of executing the trade. Yeah. To be like, okay, you know, maybe it's trading 38 cents at 40, you know, $96 and 38 cents at $96 and 40 cents. And it's really worth $96 and 38 cents rather than 39 cents. So it's slightly mispriced. Right. And like, maybe I get a subsidy from trading on this particular exchange and I can like make like 0.003 cents by like taking this and then market making to get rid of it. And like, I have this plan. And yeah, there are people who operate like that, right? They basically believe the AMH. And they're hyperfrequency traders and they try to eke out a tiny, tiny little living. Yeah. But like the reason why it's charged, the reason why it's the price is accurate is because it's not. Right. So the idea is that I see that the price is wrong and then I fix it. So the reason why I'm willing to go fix it is because I have a plausible theory that the price is often wrong. And if the only people who were trying to fix this price were people who didn't realize the prices were mostly accurate then they wouldn't collectively have the intelligence to get the accurate price. Right. Right. Like if I'm a trader, right, realistically speaking, I demand a return on capital that's much, much higher from an intelligent trader than the 0% you can get in the outside world. Right. When, you, when I was at, you know, Jane Street Capital, we had this yeah. concept called, we had this concept called what's the return on capital you need right now to make a trade, right? What's the annual return on every trade that you make yeah. It's as good as leaving the money in reserve for the next person to use that capital for the best trade that comes along tomorrow or the next hour or whatever. And that number was never that low, right? Like almost ever. There was always good things to do that made us money. Interesting. Which is the question of, is this better than the other things we could do to make us money? Gotcha. And like, it has to be that like, again, I'm not going to go in and fix a number that's like, maybe a tiny bit wrong. Unless I have a mathematical model that just says on average is the tiny bit wrong and I can just do this a billion times and make money. Right. But there's a lot of human elements in the right price of a stock, right? There's a lot of things going on in the world that want to be factored into that price. And the only way I'm going to incorporate those things is if the price is clearly wrong enough that I can go through the trade, take on the risk, tie up the capital, unload the thing, once people figure out what's going on, and make money. If I have a long-term realization, it has to be really wrong, right? Like if I, so as an example, like I noticed that Magic the Gathering Arena, the new uh, way to play, the way, new way to play Magic the Gathering yeah. was 
a much was was a much better product than people were realizing, and was going to be played by more people than anybody in the stock market who didn't understand, who hadn't actually just didn't have the domain knowledge would know. Now, I can choose to buy Hasbro stock to reflect this opinion. But what amount of error do I have to think is in Hasbro stock from this mistake before I'm willing to do this, before I buy Hasbro instead of doing anything else with my money? Right? I have to think it's a really big mistake. Right. So how does that domain knowledge enter the price of Hasbro? Well, it enters the price of Hasbro because people like me think the number is really wrong. And that doesn't happen unless after we're done, the number is still somewhat wrong. Gotcha. Right? Like when I buy it, the stock, and it goes from like 8501 to 8502 because I bought, you know, like a reasonable human person amount of stock. Yeah. The price is not like suddenly accurate. It's just maybe it was supposed to be 80, 89, right? Or 96. And if I had thought the price was supposed to be 8913, I wouldn't have bought it. I had better things to do. Right. Right. I would have bought an index fund at that point. Why would I, why would I risk the buying an individual stock for that little edge? I'd either wait for a better opportunity or I'd usually diversify. So, you know, the market can only be as accurate as it profits a man to fix. That makes sense. Right. And so that's a limit on how accurate it's going to be. And that's about how accurate it is. It's accurate enough that like, if the opportunity is glaringly clear, it'll be taken until it's not. Gotcha. But if it's not clear, it'll stick around. Well, I mean, at random. Like sometimes it'll be the other direction. Obviously, there's, there's yeah. various forces going around. Um, another way to look at it is there are people who do things for dumb reasons, yeah. right? And so, like, I, I sports. I, I did sports gambling for a while, right? Oh, so, like, one way to one way to bottle sports gambling is you have your sharps and you have your squares, right? The sharps are people who actually like know all the statistics and watch and, and like watch the games with a critical eye and like know who's injured yeah. and know the matchups and have simulations and models that they run on their computers and they do all this stuff and they look at all the lines historically and they figure out what the odds are supposed to be and they have with a large amount of error, especially in football, but like in a huge amount of error, they have an idea of what the price is supposed to be. And the squares are a bunch of fans, right? A bunch of partisans, a bunch of idiots. Right. You know. They bet on the Yankees, exactly. Well, yeah. you know, they bet on the Yankees. They bet on the Yankees more often because of the Yankees. Yeah. They bet on the Lakers because of the Lakers. They bet on favorites because favorites win, and they like rooting for teams that win. They bet on the over instead of the under. They do all these stupid, stupid moves, and they're stupid because there's a lot of squares, and there aren't anti-squares to the same extent, right? And so you can predictively know that the price is wrong, and what's going on is that the the squares will move the price until they create enough value for the sharps to be willing to commit enough capital to balance out the squares action. And the sharps include the sports books themselves who are booking the action, right? They notice, they know who their sharps are, they know the right side, they'll they'll take a certain amount of extra square money and just book it themselves. But the idea being that like it has to add up, it's not gonna add up at the fair price almost ever, unless the squares happen to not care what the price is and, and be balanced. Or like the naive price happens to be correct. Like even the NBA sort of has a very, very easy to calculate number it's supposed to be 
that like the average fan in a bar could figure out what that number is on intuition if they've been like looking at numbers for a week. Right. Like, and so if the number is seven, it was supposed to be seven, it's probably just seven. Or the number just happens to be accurate today. But if it's seven, it's supposed to be, if it's supposed to be seven, according to these idiots in the bar, and you see a five, take the five. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I actually like important, like real tip. If you need to make money, this will actually work. <laughs> you take a printout of the lines of the NBA, right? You go to a sports bar where they watch the NBA. And you say, who do you like? And you find that game where everyone likes the same side and it's not the home team at that bar. And yeah. you bet against them. <laughs> and you just do that every night. All you have to do. <laughs> I wish I was kidding and I'm not. <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> That's really cool. Uh, super interesting. Gwen, do you have any other questions? I don't think so. I have a lot of stuff to put together. Uh, I did want to say thanks for the column. It really is. Um, it's excellent. It is. And it's, uh, you think clearly. And that can be balm sometimes. Just the, um, you can kind of relax reading it because things are going to make sense. And if they don't make sense, you stare at it and eventually it does make sense. Yeah, and There's if it doesn't, then, that. and then if it doesn't after that, you should probably just write a comment and say that didn't actually make sense what's going on. And then like, I'll have to confront the fact that I didn't communicate very clearly, probably if nothing else. Right. Or I might have made a mistake. So yeah, no, I, it was weird. Cause it was really scary. Cause like at the beginning of the pandemic, right. I felt like, well, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything. I just don't want to say things because I'll just get them wrong. And then I was like, no, actually I, I know some things that clearly like the doctors don't know. Like I know that like, it's like early March and you should be freaking out and getting ready for this. Right. And so I said some things and then I started saying more and more things and realizing that, well, actually I can make sense of this better than the other sources I know about. And people seem to be appreciating this. So I should just keep going. And now I just don't even notice, right. This idea that I can make, that I can actually like think about these processes in real time week to week and make sense. And occasionally someone will, you know, strike back with, you know, but experts, but like, they never have any content to their criticisms. Right. So I stopped worrying about it. So, yes. Yeah. Well, thanks, Z. Uh, where should people find your work? Is there anything you'd like to pub, uh, send people to? So, so my blog is uh, wordpress.com. You can also find all of my posts on Less Wrong if you want to. Uh, I prefer to engage in comments on my own blog. Uh, I get notifications with them better. And it's sort of my space, it's different norms. Um, I prefer to be much more open to just discuss whatever I want to discuss and so on. Uh, but both, you know, feel free to access it how, whatever way you prefer. Uh, if you find the things useful, you know, sharing, how people find it is always good. Uh, beyond that, nothing to pimp right now. My hope is that I will have a game to pimp, you know, within a year. But, you know, it's been rough on all of us trying to make progress with COVID. Right. And so, you know, it's been slow going, but, uh, you know, hopefully soon. Great. Well, we're looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, V. All right. Bye. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. 
join us next week for more narratives. 